Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. second post for New Books in American Studies. I'm Benjamin Allen Smith, your host and currently a history graduate student at the University of Georgia. First off, I'd like to thank you for listening in on this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we'll pick a newly published book in American Studies and spend the better part of an hour speaking with the author. Our second guest is Dr. John Larson, professor of American history at Purdue University and recent co-editor of the Journal of the Early Republic. The subject of today's discussion is his new book, The Market Revolution, Liberty, Ambition, and the Eclipse of the Common Good. The book, out in 2010 from Cambridge University Press, is part of their Essential History series, which is devoted to introducing critical events, periods, and individuals in history to students. The topic of Larson's work is, as the title suggests, The Market Revolution in America, As you'll hear in the discussion, defining exactly what the market revolution was is not that simple, as it has slightly different meanings to many different historians. Typically, however, it refers to the transitory period in American history from its simple agrarian-based economic roots to the more modern capitalist system that we know today. Though historians often argue, and continue to argue, over the particulars that make up the bookends of this period, The remarkable systematic change that took place is undeniable and uncontested. Our discussion, then, will focus not merely on the content in his book, but also his personal and authorial decisions concerning where to begin and how best to convey such a worthy, complex, chimerical topic. Thank you, and I hope that you enjoy our discussion. Dr. Larson, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for asking. Today we're discussing your new book, The Market Revolution in America, Liberty, Ambition, and the Eclipse of the Common Good, out in 2010 from Cambridge University Press as part of their Essential History series. This series is devoted to introducing students to critical events, periods, or individuals in history in volumes designed for survey and upper-level undergraduate history courses. So I'd like to start first, as we do every week, by asking what brought you to this project? Well, it actually began... um... Lacey Ford asked me to write an essay for one of the uh, Oxford Companion series on the market revolution in the North. And uh, that got me to thinking about the possible utility of a a brief but comprehensive essay on the whole idea of the market revolution, which uh, about that time uh, had been uh, had been had captured the minds of uh, the, of the profession largely because of uh, Charles Sellers' uh, big volume uh, on uh, of the same title, the Market Revolution, uh, which uh, was <clears throat> uh, enormously controversial, not altogether uh, successful, but uh, but uh, got a great deal of uh, of uh, conversation going. 
And so uh, out of that grew uh, an idea for uh, kind of a classroom-sized treatment of the market revolution. And uh, that's when I uh, crossed paths with Lou Bateman at Cambridge, uh, who told me about the Essential uh, History series, and it seemed like a nice fit. So I, I shaped it for that purpose. So if you could just briefly explain, I guess, for the listeners what the uh, market revolution was and its historical significance, that would be great. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> pardon me. It's uh, what most of us mean when we talk about the market revolution is the emergence between the end of the revolution and the time of the Civil War of a fairly well-articulated um, market system in which most people are engaged in market transactions most of the time. In the colonial period, uh, almost everybody had some uh, 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 contact with markets, um, even if it was just local exchanges. Um, And uh, through most of the antebellum period, um, Americans were in what I would consider an important transition from a world in which uh, semi-subsistence and and local self-sufficiency were giving way to a, an increasingly uh, broad-based, market-oriented uh, network of exchanges that, in the case of the United States, eventually became a, on a continental scale uh, with, uh, with inputs from around the world and with exports to various uh, parts of the world. So it's that enlargement of economic activity from the local, casual, and and occasional to the dominant and central uh, aspect of of people's lives. That's very interesting. And I know in the beginning of the book you choose to address the complicated historiography just very briefly. You know, you already addressed Teller's book. Um, Yeah. But uh, if you could, could you please talk about the market revolution as a term? I know it's a complicated term. It's a rather charged term in the historical profession. Why is that? Well, there are half a dozen <clears throat> market revolutions. There's, there's one in the 16th century. There's a couple in the, uh, uh, in the 17th and 18th century. Uh, there's at least two in the 19th century. Uh, so it, it's a term that if you try and give it too much precision without identifying when and, and where and what you're talking about, uh, then people will, uh, will immediately uh, get into an argument with you over whether yours is the market revolution or some other uh, is uh, is a better example. <clears throat> There's a great deal of uh, of scholarship uh, about the extent to which <clears throat> the colonists in the 17th century were already capitalistic, and I think there's no doubt that in some ways they were. Um, <clears throat> there's also a great deal of literature talking about the so-called moral economy of the 18th century, going back to E.P. Thompson's famous essay about the moral economy of the English crowd. Um, there's also uh, there are there are people who argue that uh, anything like a market revolution doesn't really happen until after the Civil War, with the rise of heavy industry and uh, a, a very large uh, propertyless working class. These are the reasons that the historiography becomes so uh, contested, and the reason I do very little with the historiography is because I was more interested in calling our attention to a transition that clearly does happen. Whether or not you want to call it a market revolution uh, is less important to me than that we give it some kind of a name and then get down to to look at what it is that's going on. 
Right, because there's obviously a significant change from um, the time you're right, you you start writing it to the time that you sort of end up. Exactly. Something clearly happened. I really don't care what you call it. I think the market revolution as a term is useful for uh, for uh, giving it a, 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 a tag which does not require a paragraph to uh, to refer to. <laughs> well said. So when we do speak of the market revolution, uh, pretty much whatever market revolution you're referring to, uh, we, we typically talk about the revolution as a, a period of progress uh, due to these rapid technological innovations that were occurring. Yeah. Um, so once again, we're struggling with this blanket term. I mean, is it problematic to think about and categorize this period under a blanket term like progress? Uh, and if so, why? Well, I think that the idea of progress is central to what uh, to what I think the market revolution is all about. Uh, and among other things, one of the one of the great cultural sea changes that that indicates a market revolution has taken place is the fact that people uh, are are shifting from a world in which um, they do not necessarily anticipate the future to be greatly different from the past into a world in which they have come to consider it normal that the future is unimaginably different. One of the uh, evidences I like to point to uh, when I'm lecturing on the subject, if you look at turnpike charters uh, between 1790 and 1810, they invariably uh, entitle the, uh, the, the, the projector of the turnpike to collect tolls for up to 60 or 80 years, and then they turn around and set those tolls at the level of detail that it would be four cents for a wagon load of hay and two cents a piece for sheep and milk cows. And these are set with the assumption that those prices will be good for the next 80 years. Right. Well, you aren't living in a, a modern capitalist economy if you start setting prices into the future for 80 years. There are, there are assumptions there about how the world works uh, and what will not happen, that is, change. Right. It's almost like um, in Morton... Horowitz is uh, the Charles River Bridge case that he brings up and sort of extended yeah. contracts and whatnot. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. And it's, and it's in that first couple of decades after the revolution that people begin to come to terms with the idea that we don't know what the future will look like. And so they start creating more open-ended structures. Right. And so uh, when do you see that starting to change? When do you see um, sort of the systematic changes that are welcoming uh, creative destruction well, I think uh, uh, you see it in uh, the early these these some of these early charters uh, between 1800 and 1820. They begin to be less restrictive. Um, one of the places that you see it is in the shift to general incorporation laws. The state finds it so frustrating, uh, and and it, it endangers elected officials to be handing out special charters to individual groups that they begin to sort of throw in the towel and say, all right, anybody who wants to incorporate a bridge can do so, just follow the, these procedures. And, uh, and it essentially removes the magistrate from the business of trying to decide which is better and which is, uh, is not. And in doing so, they embrace the market as the arbiter of those, uh, of those conflicts. Uh, the reason it's so popular, I think, is because at the time, the assumption was that markets are incorruptible, that they're natural, that they cannot be bought off or manipulated by political favor. Uh, therefore, if anybody has to uh, has to judge, let it be the this neutral hand of the marketplace. Right. 
Well, I guess even peeling back another layer, um, you start your narrative with the close of the Revolutionary War and the founders' efforts to repair and restart the war-torn economy. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the barriers and obstacles that these radical leaders faced in those early years and how they managed to overcome them. I know you mentioned like the war debt, damage to capital, both physical and loss of slaves. And so if you could just talk a little bit about that. Um, sure. That'd be great. <clears throat> the colonial economy, as I understand it, um, uh, was a, sort of a two-layered affair. Much of the uh, economic activity had to do with maintenance and, and subsistence to the local communities, but almost everyone, uh, or at least uh, every place, every region, every uh, exporting town, was involved to some extent with a larger Atlantic uh, uh, network as well, importing uh, goods, exporting uh, uh, agricultural produce or, or tobacco or whatever, uh, so that uh, you... Uh, with the revolution, you, you lose our place in the British uh, mercantilist network and are left with uh, those networks, especially with the West Indies and, and uh, the Western Hemisphere um, trading partners that, uh, that were very profitable for Americans but still belonged to European imperial powers. So at some level, we have to figure out what our relationship is going to be with the other closed empires uh, of the world. Um, the damage of the war itself, you mentioned uh, uh, loss of capital. Uh, it's a fairly low-level capitalization in most of this economy. Slaves probably were the most important thing that were lost, uh, a, a vast number of slaves, uh, which represent uh, huge investments of just plain cash money. Uh, but the other thing which I think we easily forget uh, is a number of, uh, of farmers called off to serve in the war, sometimes for two or three years, uh, much longer than they anticipated. Well, a family farm uh, untended for two or three years um, also loses a great deal of its viability. So there were probably uh, two or three years of individual effort uh, spent just getting back to uh, pre-war levels of productivity in, in all kinds of endeavors, in workshops, in farms, in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, forest activities and all of that. Uh, these were the kinds of problems uh, topped with, of course, the war debt and the question of uh, what to do about all the borrowed money, borrowed from uh, our, our own um, residents, but also borrowed from overseas, uh, from the French and the Dutch. Um, and all of that, I think, <clears throat> helped to motivate people like Hamilton uh, to attempt to create uh, what they knew uh, as, a, as a workable system, uh, what historians now call the fiscal military state, a, right. a series of policies uh, that would allow them to, um, to monetize that debt, to create a circulating medium out of virtually nothing, <laughs> and, uh, and, and create the possibility of restarting um, an import-export ec economy with which to then start to balance those accounts. Okay, well, that's great. Um, and now I sort of want to turn the conversation towards the subtitle of your book, which is Liberty, Ambition, and the Eclipse of the Common Good. Um, that last part really strikes me, and, and I think it's a sort of common theme throughout your work. Um, so if you could unpack that title for us. I mean, obviously, not everyone benefited from the progress uh, we were seeing at this time. Well, I've been I've been fascinated for a long time with the uh, the idea of progress and uh, and the two edged quality. Uh, uh, that's embedded in that uh, in that term, 
And uh, by by including the eclipse of the common good, I've, obviously I'm trying to point uh, to the uh, to the fact that uh, what on the whole may appear to be a a, a stunningly forward looking set of changes, uh, they were received and experienced by an awful lot of people uh, with a, a serious element of loss. And one of the long term losses in in any uh, rise of a liberal, capitalistic, entrepreneurial system uh, is that it tends to erode the kind of communal um, ethic or the commonwealth idea, uh, which, to go back to a literature from the, from the 1960s, uh, <clears throat> the idea that the purpose of an economy is to care for the community. And modern capitalism has, uh, has lifted out of that instead the idea that the purpose of the economy is to generate the maximum possible uh, uh, return on investment. And that may or may not uh, serve the interests of a community at any given time or place. And that seems to me to be the crux of what the generation after 1800 was facing, because they they staged a revolution on behalf of self-government. And they believed in the 1770s that self-government would, among other things, hold the key to generating prosperity for themselves. And as they move away from a government-controlled, government-dictated, mercantilist sort of economic structure, I think most Americans believe they were empowering themselves to participate freely in the prosperity machine. What surprised them in the, uh, in the middle decades of the antebellum period was that the more they liberated individuals in that kind of a marketplace the less it seemed they were free to generate their own prosperity and the more they became dependent on forces they could not control. And I think that uh, left a lot of people staggeringly frustrated by this idea of progress. Right. And it's almost a little bit ironic that when you go back and look at some of the sources, um, a lot of the people sort of making these decisions and codifying these changes are um, sort of speaking in terms of the the Commonwealth. They're saying saying that, you know, the the changes that are being made that are ushering in creative destruction are for the the greater good. Exactly. And it it, it calls to mind uh, a distinction which uh, I know in my youth, uh, growing up in the 50s and 60s, a big deal was always made of uh, the Russian constitution that, uh, that guarantees in its Bill of Rights Things like uh, freedom, you know, the freedom of a living, the freedom of, a, of an apartment, the freedom of a job, all of those kinds of entitlements, <clears throat> which in you know, post-World War II, Americans all believe to be simply wrong. But if you go back to the famous uh, FDR uh, Four Freedoms that uh, the Saturday Evening Post uh, uh, enshrined so beautifully in those drawings, uh, freedom from want has a deep root in the tradition of America's Republican uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And the idea that a, that a free self-governing society should be one in which people are not freely exploited um, had great resonance with that generation. Right. And so obviously you talk about this a lot in your chapter, uh, which I think is appropriately titled Heartless Markets, Heartless Men. So, I mean, where do you see specific, like which groups do you see uh, as being particularly victimized or marginalized? I know we talked about it just a moment ago, very in basic terms, but. Right, right. <clears throat> well, first, let me let me preface it by saying that it, um, I, I, I hit upon a strategy which I had not intended, but actually became quite satisfied with. 
um, of, uh, of, a, of a chapter that, uh, descri- that described and discussed progress in all of its exciting, enthusiastic uh, uh, possibilities. And then a second chapter that uses the same time period and, and creates essentially a counter-narrative because um, what I found was that the two are so intermingled in the experience of this generation. Uh, and uh, uh, one, of the, one of the really staggering things to, to my mind is that the very same people can be found on alternate days singing the praises of some new progressive development and uh, at another moment bemoaning the loss of their own sense of economic sovereignty in a different situation. So that uh, where sellers, I think, uh, created a, a sense that there was a class of people behind the market revolution and a much larger class of people victimized by it. And my counter to that would be that uh, the promise of, of entrepreneurial freedom was attractive to a lot of people, uh, many of whom enjoyed entrepreneurial freedom in their own industry, even while they labored to suppress it in someone else's. Um, and instead of it being a group of good guys and bad guys, what I like to see is a generation of people who are dabbling in both worlds, right. trying on the one hand to preserve um, that, that sort of commonwealth, that sense of welfare and, and uh, access to, to prosperity, and at the same time um, make the next big killing, because that's how one also suddenly becomes rich and famous. Interesting. And, yeah, those chapters are definitely uh, paired well. The, the way that the book flows, it goes through the chapter, like you said, on internal improvements, and then sort of goes into the counter-narrative. But what's interesting is in between the chapters, and this is something that you do throughout, in between your major chapters, you have these little um, vignettes that you call interludes where you describe economic panic years. Can you just just talk a little bit about your uh, decision to include those and and what you um, had in mind uh, when when you were thinking about doing that? Well, uh, number one, I needed some some way to separate the two two long narratives. But the other thing was that the, the... the panics struck me uh, in the sources themselves, struck me as, as being um, negative interludes in what this generation experienced on the whole as a, a general uh, transition in a, in a certain direction. But uh, you hit 1819 and there's this, this, and panic is the right word for it. There's this sudden widespread sense of, good God, what's happened? Everything is falling apart. Prices drop by a third or a half. People are going broke left and right. There's 50% unemployment in Baltimore and Philadelphia. And this is unemployment among people who no longer have uh, three or four acres and a few pigs and a milk cow to go home to. People with nothing. And, uh, and no, you know, no means of acquiring firewood or the, the most basic kind of diet, uh, possibly not even shelter. So this struck people as an enormous... Uh, break from traditions of the past. There had been good times and bad times in the past, but this was the first time that, uh, that in pockets at least, on a, on a mass scale, you have people saying, we have no way of dealing with this and no way of knowing who caused it. And it typically, in both of these panics, uh, the first recourse is to look for moral failure. There must be crooks, there must be speculators, or we must be overindulging, we must be spending too much. 
And if you recall from the epilogue, I mean, this is a tradition that we continue to echo as well. Uh, when, you know, when, when the system falls out from under us, we are still programmed to want to assume, as we did in the housing crisis, that, well, if these people just hadn't borrowed more than they could afford, we'd be all right. right. Uh, well, that sounded to me enormously like the kind of agonizing that went on in the panics of 1819 and 1837. By the way, I found it interesting that you were able to squeeze that in there. That must have been quite tight with the uh, publishing, with, with the date that uh, this book came out. Well, that happened because um, after the review process, and I had rewritten one chapter, the last chapter I, I completely recast as a result of the pre-publication uh, negotiations with the publisher, so that it was, in fact, August and early September of 2008 when I was finishing up that, that rewrite, and this all began happening. And I, <laughs> I called Bateman and I said, do you mind if I tack something onto this? And he said, what the hell, go ahead. And so this was literally happening in real time. I was pulling stuff off the, uh, off the news feeds uh, on a daily basis. And uh, so that I think it's late October that I sent this back. Uh, and that stuff was all just uh, so fresh that it probably still smells bad. But... Uh, <laughs> But it just struck me as a, uh, and it will date the book, unfortunately, you know, 10 years from now, people will wonder why that's on there. But it struck me that at least in the short run, uh, it might be a useful thing, especially for students to be able to see that there are echoes of these kinds of, of, of dynamic difficulties uh, that stretch right up to the present day. Right. And, that, you know, I'm not necessarily sure it's one of those uh, tropes that will date the book. I think that when you look at the book and you look at when it's written, it makes sense. It's sort of like this couldn't have happened at a more timely <laughs> you know, place with the, uh, the economy the way it was. So, I mean, I think it worked well. And, and especially, like you said, for students, that would work extremely well. It sort of ties everything together right at the end. And like, oh, you know, this, this still happens. This still goes on. Um, it's sort of a continuing theme that we haven't, we're not able to control uh, these markets and whatnot. So, I always I, I do that sort of thing with trepidation because uh, good historians all know that we we hate the idea that uh, that nothing changes and everything is the same and and uh, you know all problems remain with us. By the same token, um, it seems to me that to, to 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 recognize that there are deep roots to certain kinds, especially to misapprehensions. We misapprehend things, and then we misapprehend them again in very much the same way. And these are cultural constructs. We do that because of the way we understand the world. And so it seems to me it is useful sometimes to call attention to, uh, to in this case, what I think is a failure to learn from repeated experiences with, uh, with the business cycles. Right. Um, so if I may, I'd like to just pull a quote really quick from your concluding chapter on how to explain the market revolution. Um, do you mind if I do that? Just read no, it quickly. Fine. Um, you say here that, and I'm quoting, how then to explain this market revolution in the early United States? How do we best describe a zebra? Is it a black horse with white stripes or a white horse with black? End quote. So obviously, and we were just discussing it, um, the market revolution is a difficult thing to come to terms with and, and to describe. Um, it sounds like something that we're obviously still struggling with, you personally and sort of the, the profession as a whole. And can you talk about uh, the difficulty in trying to explain such a mess, especially to students? Because I, I'd imagine you use this book in your survey classes. I have. Um, and and it, it, it works with mixed results, as you might expect. <laughs> Many of my students uh, come away convinced that I'm some kind of a socialist uh, 
post-colonial Kenyan nutcase, but, <laughs> but uh, that can't entirely be helped. Um, I mean, I know it's, it might be an unfair question. It's obviously. Oh, it's okay. I'm just, I'm not sure that the, that the zebra illustration uh, will, will hold up well in the long run either. <laughs> it struck me at the time as a, uh, as a good way to, to frame the frustration. No, I think, uh, I think it's great because honestly, when I was thinking about that, uh, that zebra, I, I just go back and think about the classes that I sat in on as an undergraduate. And, you know, when I'm thinking about teaching it, you just it's, so, it's one of those uh, crucial time periods that everyone just treats so quickly. So if you think of it as a zebra, and you think of that zebra just sort of buzzing past you at 100 miles an hour, if you looked at it quickly, it would appear gray. And I think it's stripes blur. That's exactly. Right. So I think it's great to sort of uh, stop and examine the zebra and and piece out those those stripes and take a look at them. And well, and there's no there's no doubt that when you when you pass over it at a certain pace, uh, progress is the color that uh, that dominates. Right. Uh, and uh, like like a motion picture, if it goes fast enough, you don't see the f- individual frames. And uh, and progress is. I mean, it's 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 undeniable. It's something we all have profited from, but it has always had with it um, some you know some baggage that uh, that people have you know protested against from the very beginning. Now, in in our present era, that baggage is increasingly calling our attention to things like uh, environmental degradation, climate change, and the and the eventual limits on the planetary resources. Um, all of which uh, I think you know the, the 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 capitalist entrepreneurial system is very ill-equipped to uh, to take into account. Our whole sense of, of accounting doesn't uh, doesn't include those distant external uh, resource depletion kinds of, of variables. So um, when you're lecturing to a classroom of eighteen, nineteen, twenty-year-olds, first of all, everything about being eighteen, nineteen, and twenty years old. Um, you want to look at a, a world you think is working. You want to see a future you think is is hopeful. There's nothing about that uh, that that would, would prepare you to want to see this as a tragic tale. Right. So, and and I think it would be wrong to preach it as a tragic tale. I think that's one of the things that Sellers overplayed was the idea <laughs> that guys won, and we're all screwed here. Right. Uh, and it's sort of disingenuous because you know, to, to, to write a book that says we're all screwed here on a modern uh, uh, computer and flash it off by email to a publisher in a matter of seconds um, is, you know, you certainly couldn't have done that in the uh, in the days of Ben Franklin's type shop. <laughs> right. So, you know, we all obviously have profited from the, the sins of these fathers of ours. Uh, so it seems to me it's important to acknowledge that, and at the same time, to call their attention to those stripes, to the to the different colors, and maybe to recover the credibility of some of those voices of complaint that are easily dismissed as you know, well, a bunch of cranks that just want to go backward in time. But there was a, a probably a majority of the American people in 1810 or 1820 who would have told you that the promise of the revolution included the right to have the kind of life they already were living and would not have expected that the freedoms that they had earned in the revolution were going to inexorably erode that out from under them. That would not have struck them as the right legacy. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Larson. That about rounds out our time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. And, um, you know, I just want to say that I know we've been talking a lot about students and the utility of this book maybe in the classroom, 
but it's also written in such uh, fluid narrative prose that I think it, it would be very appealing to the general reader. So once again, I just want to say uh, thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Larson. It's great having you. Thank you for the invitation. I've enjoyed it. Okay, and uh, this was New Books in American Studies, and once again, the uh, topic of this discussion has been The Market Revolution in America, Liberty, Ambition, and the Eclipse of the Common Good. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.